the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The Al Conservador Radio Show is sponsored by George Rodriguez on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Time for the El Conservador Radio Show with George Rodriguez. George is a constitutional conservative who loves to expose fake news and liberals. Be a part of the show. Call 210-308-8867. And now, El Conservador, George Rodriguez. Once again, George Rodriguez on KLUP 930 AM radio. The answer here in San Antonio. We've got... uh, our very, very good friend, our regular guest, uh, Mr. Jason Jones, who is a uh, uh, former DPS officer here in Texas, as well as a, an expert on uh, the border uh, crime issue. And uh, Jason, like myself, has been on uh, TV lately being asked the same question, did we expect a violent attack like the like happened, like the massacre that just happened uh, in Sonora? Uh, Jason, uh, how many times have you been asked that? And what is, what is your gut reaction when they ask you, did you expect such a violent attack? (laughs) George, it's always good to be back with you, buddy. Thanks for having me today. And yeah, I gotta be honest. It brings out a lot of frustration because for the last two and a half years since I retired and retired early because knowing exactly what was coming. I've crossed this country on my own dollar trying to warn the American people and to get the State Department to act. And, you know, here we are two and a half years later, and people are asking me if we expected it. Yes, we've expected it. Uh, How could we not? 200,000-plus people killed in Mexico, 40,000 missing. Um, I mean, 26,000 in morgues that are unidentified. How could we not? I mean, you'd have to be blind not to expect this to have happened. So, you know, it's, it's a shame but it's just where we are, and now we need to take action. Yeah, and what's fascinating to me is that you've told us several times, the many times that you've been on our show, you've said that we've got to declare these folks uh, terrorist organizations, we've got to uh, better coordinate, which is all of a sudden the same thing that all these talking heads are saying. That's uh, very, very interesting. (laughs) Yeah, and you know, I'll I'll tell you something on that, George. You know, when I started this two and a half years ago, you know, I used to teach um, at one of the most elite uh, military colleges in the country, everyone from the intelligence community all the way down to local law enforcement. When I first started saying that we need to designate the cartels as foreign terrorist organizations, I'm not kidding you when people would laugh at me. And today they're not laughing. And, you know, finally the rest of the country has seen what is happening. And, uh, you know, this was a real tipping point, but you know, at a, at a great cost, you know, what, what beautiful children and people that were brutally, brutally killed. It was just so unnecessary, so unnecessary. So at this point, what have, I mean, what have we learned? Let's analyze it, you know, with the, given, given your intel, your, your, uh, uh, what you've learned, what you what you know, uh, I mean, this, uh, they keep saying that this was an accident and then more than anything else. Now, all of a sudden the, uh, the Mexican government says that they've caught somebody, uh, who was associated with it. Uh, what do you think? I mean, do you believe this? No, not at all. That's that's all propaganda. Uh, none of that's right. Um, these, Without any question, this is going to have been an attack. I mean, there was three separate vehicles, and they were all hit. So it's going to be an attack. Where the challenge is right now is figuring out which cell it was. What you have happening down there in, in the state of Sonora, George, is you have multiple cartels and multiple factions that historically are battling one another that are uniting and working together. So under the Sinaloa Federation, we call it, um, you've got different groups like Gente Nueve, who used to be with La Lina cartel and the Juarez cartel, who are now working with Sinaloa. Um, You've got another cell of the Jaguars within them that are battling um, along with uh, the La Lina group. And they are right now in the mountains of the Sierras. They are battling it out. I mean, this is going. So some of the early reports about ongoing 
fighting in the area. That's absolutely true, but that's been happening. That's not anything new. So this family uh, was well-known in the area. They had lived down there. Um, you know, they had taken up arms against the cartels, and they had been well-known. They had refused to comply with the cartels. And, you know, we've got to be real honest that down in that area, to be able to live in that environment, you've got to be able to protect yourself. It's very remote. I mean, just to kind of give you an example, it took the military four hours to get there. Wow. Wow. I mean, you know, it, it is. I mean, I've, I've seen... Uh, I mean, I, I, I knew friends that were from the Mormon colonies in that area, and uh, it is very, very remote. I mean, it's wild desert and mountain areas. I mean, you know, there there are areas where uh, the Apaches just held out for, you know, into the 1920s even. So uh, it is very, very remote. Now, these folks, these folks, these cells that you talk about, it's almost like they're different tribes and trying to pacify different tribes, trying to find and, and and coordinate some type of peace and law and order, I'm not sure that's possible. Well, that's the whole thing. Law and order in Mexico right now, George, is really just, it, it's gone. I mean, even in the, in the days of 2011 and 2012 when we were fighting the Zetas and they were just as brutal as they were, the murder rates were somewhere around 21,000 to 24,000 from year to year. You know, now we're at a much higher level. I mean, the truth is, you know, last year we were just shy of 34,000 Mexican citizens killed, and this year I, I really believe they're going to be over 40 or around that number. So for the, for the length of time that Mexico has actually been, can, you know, counting stats for the number of people murdered in Mexico, this is, this is an all-time high. It, 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 it's, uh, you know, it, it, the violence just seems to get worse. And then we've got uh, the, the president, Obrador, making the comment that uh, he's got it under control. He told President uh, Trump that they don't need American help, that they've got it under control. Uh, you know, how realistic is that? It's not, and it's not going to get better, and this is exactly why I've been speaking out. And one of the things I'd like to cover, too, is that I'm really frustrated with the think tanks that are out there putting out bad information, and it's outdated. And so what the folks need to know is that what they're saying right now is, well, this is an insurgency. Well, that's the State Department is what that is, putting that out. And these think tanks then follow the State Department's rhetoric. And I want to explain why it's not. There's been three transitions over the years. The cartels went from organized crime to an insurgency in 06. 06, I know you'll remember, that's when President Calderon and his administration in Mexico used their military against the cartels. And that's when the cartels began the insurgency, because that uh, insurgency is nothing more than rebellion against the government, right? And they began fighting back and obtaining much higher-grade military weapons and tradecraft. Now, fast forward to 2010-2011. You'll remember when 72 uh, migrants trying to better themselves and get to the United States were brutally executed by the cartel. It was the Zetas that did it. They, trying to get political persuasion tried to blame it on another cartel, the Gulf, and actually killed them in Gulf cartel territory. So that's when this transition into terrorism really started. I mean, and you may also remember the, uh, the execution with the car bomb in Nuevo Laredo where they attempted to kill the mayor who was at his municipal building. He had just gotten up, walked to the rear when the car bomb went off. But, and he survived that day, but, you know, unfortunately... About a year and a half later, he would be found in the trunk of a car with no arms, no legs, and no head. And that's just right off the top of my head. I mean, George, I could tell you and your viewers one after another of where they have gone in and out of the terrorism world. And so what we've got to do is, is stop trying to you know, pacify this thing as the State Department does, stop trying to... It, well, it's just organized crime. Well, it's just an insurgency. It's not. It is much more than that. And we've got to take action as the U.S. to ensure that we are protecting our citizens. That's right. I, I have no confidence whatsoever that Mexico, that Mexican politicians can stop this matter. I, I you know, or put it even put put in a dent in it. I, I have no, no, no uh, confidence in that. You know, it doesn't. And, George, I'm going to tell you that's well said, and you're absolutely right. And let me tell you why. If you go back to 2011, you'll probably remember when the discussion at the national level around this country when the cartel violence was, was peaking back then, 
was Mexico a failed state? Do you remember those discussions back then? Yes. Now fast forward to today. You notice we don't talk about that. That's not the discussion anymore because the truth is we can't tell you where the Mexican government ends and the cartels begin. That's and exactly right. the world right. saw that a few weeks ago in Culiacan when the president of a country, of Mexico, released Ovidio Guzman. That was unprecedented. And okay. that goes to show you the level of terrorism they're capable of. And one of the things that really hasn't come out yet about that, they, they took a lot of families hostage and said, look, what's it going to be, Mr. President? Are you going to release a video, or are we going to kill these men, women, and children? I mean, that's the truth of what happened there. Yep. So this thing is out of control. There is no way that, that the, the Mexican uh, president... Uh, or any of his uh, of, of his underlings can stop this matter. It, it, you know, it 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 it's going to require surgical strikes, in my opinion. So, what else can can you uh, share with us before we 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 leave you? Yeah, what the last thing I would say is that one of the things we've got to do is we've got to get this terrorism designation, and the reason it's important is because we need policy change at the national level. This won't be something that we fix overnight. We've let it go on for decades and decades and decades. And the cartels are global. They're not just in Mexico. They're not just in the United States. They're operating all over the world. And if we're going to be successful moving forward, we need to change national policy to use tools of national power to go after them. And I want your folks to know they're listening, that this is winnable. But we've got to get in this, and we've got to start addressing it. That's right. This is not about nation building. This is about defense of our nation. Oh, yeah. Well said. Uh, um, State Department in Meridia, $3.1 <laughs> billion to Mexico, George. $3.1 billion. And what did the American taxpayer get for that? Jeez. Jeez. Oh, oh, my gosh. Well, you know, we try to buy our friends. What can I say? Thank you very much, Jason. Once again, Mr. Jason Jones, uh, our good friend, border security expert. Uh, thank you for being with us, buddy. Hey, great to be with you. Take care, George. Thank you. George Rodriguez, El Conservador, talking to you on KLUP 930 AM Radio, The Answer in San Antonio. Conservador listeners, if you are interested in following George Rodriguez, El Conservador, we invite you to follow him at his internet website, elconservador.net. You can also follow him on Facebook at George Rodriguez, El Conservador, and on Twitter at El Conservador for daily commentaries. You can also purchase his book, El Conservador, Conservative Opinions, online at Amazon.com. The book contains essays and commentaries about illegal immigration, fake news, and race relations. If you're interested in inviting El Conservador to speak to your group or event, please contact him through Facebook or through the station at 930amtheanswer.com. El Conservador thanks you for your support. Keep the fire of freedom burning. All right, folks, once again, welcome back to the show. And uh, this is, uh, we've got uh, a, a, one of our guests from the Immigration Reform Law Institute, Mr. Lo, Mr. Lou uh, Oloski, and he is going to chat with us about this uh, uh, case called Gonzalez versus uh, Core Civic. And uh, apparently, uh, if you can hold on to your hats, uh, it has to do with illegal aliens, an illegal alien refusing both to leave as well as to demand maid service. Now, we've talked a lot about our, on our show, my friends, about uh, the condition of the uh, detention centers uh, along the border and uh, in other places. And, uh, you know, they are not concentration camps. We've already determined that. Uh, in this case, apparently, um, we've got someone who claims that she was being forced to clean up after herself, and therefore, it's forced labor. So, let's, uh, let's get uh, Luke. Welcome to the show. Please tell us. Why did uh, Immigration Reform Law Institute file a, frame, a, a friend of the court brief in this? What is it that uh, you're trying to accomplish? What is it, what is it that interested um, early about this? Well, you're exactly right in you know, your description of the case. This is about foreign citizens who break the law when they enter the United States, then they get detained here, and now they are suing to set the terms of their own detention. In particular, they demand to be paid to stay in detention. And we were interested in this case uh, for a few reasons. One, kind of like you pointed out just now, this is a bit of a slander against our immigration 
uh, enforcement system, right? You you mentioned that this reminds you a bit about how uh, some people had called our immigration detention centers concentration camps, which is uh, outrageous to anybody who understands the moral gravity of the Holocaust and how incomparable that is to the very reasonable enforcement policies that we have, that if anything, uh, we're not enforcing vigorously enough, right? So here we have a similar kind of slander where people are saying that immigration detention centers are slave labor camps. And the allegation that this, this is a slave labor camp is that these illegal aliens that are being detained are required to clean up after themselves, clean up after their own uh, living quarters. That's being called an illegal instance of forced labor. So they're suing under the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, as if the company that is helping the federal government run these facilities is engaged in forced labor and human trafficking just because it implements exactly the detention rules that Congress and uh, the executive branch have both instructed this company to provide. I, this is this is it sounds absolutely well first of all it's it's very very insanely uh, an insane stretch of the imagination uh here they are illegal aliens number one they have been caught they are being detained and they're upset that they're that they're having to make their beds i mean what am i missing here This uh, this approach, this legal tactic, I guess, or legal, uh, uh, what can you call it, uh, approach that uh, that these activists are taking to try to, like as you say, throw everything on uh, on the wall and see what sticks. Uh, it, that seems to be happening across the board on all sorts of things, uh, e- including voting and everything else. Uh, you know, illegal aliens are are, are being. Uh, as long as they can prove or show that they are being treated less, by definition, that's uh, that we're supposed to feel sympathy for them. Is that is that is that the the, the strategy that they've got? I mean, the, the strategy as you frame it is even more 
are reasonable, right? Like the allegation that you are being treated uh, less, right? We can debate whether that's a proper approach for public policy, but oftentimes the allegations don't even amount to that much. And courts will politely describe some of these claims as being creative theories of the law. Again, here, for example, uh, one of my colleagues wrote an article in which he pointed out that detainees in the state of Indiana, for example, are paid only 25 cents per day for labor that they do while they're in detention. And these uh, aliens in this case are saying that the, the, con the, the rate that Congress decided of $1 per day, so four times more than American detainees in, for example, Indiana uh, get paid, is illegally low. Right, that that's that's abusive. So, so it's a wage labor issue. Treated worse. <laughs> you can't even say that they're being treated worse than Americans, right? You don't even have have that much uh, going on in this case. Uh, it's amazing. It's amazing. Uh, uh, where are we headed? I mean, do you see any light at the tunnel, uh, Lou? In this whole situation of of, uh, of litigation uh, on behalf of illegal aliens, I mean, I mean, so many of us out here in the uh, you know, in the grassroots are so frustrated with watching, yes, yes, watching illegal aliens sometimes get away literally with murder, and, uh, and, and we, uh, you know, and, and the justice system seems to be on their side. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's hard to say whether the glass is half full or half empty and whether there's a light at the end of the tunnel, because the pressures against law enforcement are severe, uh, shockingly, there's a lot of people who support this kind of activist litigation, this knee-jerk favoritism toward illegal aliens, without thinking about whether people are deportable for good reason, such as that they've committed crimes. And it's, it's distressing when you see that certain members of the public just don't get it. And it's also distressing when you see judges going along with the most, um, how do you say, uh, creative claims that a lawyer can make up, right? That, that, that's very distressing. Uh, what should give us hope that this can be reversed are two things. One, as you go up the appeals process, oftentimes judges become uh, more discerning and, uh, and better able to tell what is a legitimate lawsuit versus what is a, a bogus lawsuit. And so we're confident that some of these cases will get reversed on appeal. The other light at the end of the tunnel is the attorney general himself and the Trump administration. This administration seems to take very seriously its obligation to enforce immigration law. And so you have certain promising developments, such as just this week, uh, the attorney general um, made a decision in a, in a case uh, called um, the case of Thomas and Thompson, which dealt with uh, aliens who have been convicted of aggravated felonies under federal law and are thus um, required to be deported. Uh, when can a state court intervene and save them from deportation? Prior to this week, there was an inconsistent approach where sometimes a state court judge can look at the conviction of an illegal alien and just to spare him from the immigration consequences can use various legal jargon to wipe the conviction clean as if it never happened. And then in some cases, the, uh, f the federal government would respect that and allow the illegal alien to stay, even though he had committed crimes here. And in other cases, the law was being applied more faithfully. The attorney general just came out with a decision that said, look, if the reason that the case and the conviction of this illegal alien has been wiped is because of some underlying problem in due process of, of that conviction, so something that, that exists specifically independent of a judge's desire to keep a criminal in this country, or independent of a judge's desire to rehabilitate a criminal, but because the criminal was, was, was actually perhaps not a criminal, right? The conviction itself was erroneous. In those kinds of cases, the federal government will not enforce the underlying conviction. But in all other situations, uh, if, if a judge has decided to change the record of a conviction um, for any other reason, especially if, if the judge is saying, I just don't want this guy to get deported, then the federal government is going to ignore that. And instead, the federal government is going to enforce, enforce the law and deport the convicted criminal anyway. Excellent. And a different administration would, might not be taking such a common-sense approach. A different administration or a different attorney general might instead be taking an approach that is um, more, uh, how do you say, 
uh, liberal. <laughs> More liberal, yeah. Illegal alien criminals and, and their lawyers. Right. Amazing, amazing. Uh, this is yeah, I, you know that it does sound very, very favorable, and or 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 like there is a a light at the end of the tunnel when you explain it that way. Lou, thank you very much for coming on our show. I appreciate it tremendously. Tell the folks how they can follow up and uh, and uh, donate or or follow uh, your organization. Well, if you listen to this much of the broadcast, then I think you've already put yourself uh, among the the top most informed. American citizens on these issues, because sadly a lot of people aren't aware of what's happening on the ground in our immigration system. But if you wanted to uh, stay on top of new developments in this area, then I do encourage you to visit our website at www.irli.org. I-R-L-I, that's Immigration Reform Law Institute.org. Almost every day we put out a new press release uh, telling you uh, what we're up to, what issues we're working on and what interesting developments are happening in the law, whether that's uh, a new decision from the Attorney General or the President, or the results of an investigation that we might do into sanctuary policies around the country. So, again, if you want to stay informed, it's IRLI.org, early.org. Excellent. Thanks a lot for joining us, Lou. I appreciate it tremendously. Have a great day, Mr. Rodriguez. All right, folks, once again, George Rodriguez, El Conservador, talking to you from San Antonio, deep in the heart of South Texas, uh, on KLUP 930 AM radio. And we've got uh, a friend of ours who's been on before, uh, it, it, chatting with us all the way from from, uh, from beautiful Georgia, Mr. D.A. King. And D.A. is president of the Dustin Inman Society in uh, Gwinnett, Georgia. And uh, I wanted to reach out and ask him because uh, there's been several stories that have been popping up regarding uh, illegal immigration uh, in Georgia. And I wanted to get him on the show so he can tell us, give us, give us uh, an idea of how, you know, a, a history of how illegal immigrants ended up, illegal aliens ended up in Georgia and what's been going on since then. So, D.A., welcome to the show. Thank you for taking time to chat with us. Tell us, what is the history? How, how, how did illegal aliens end up in Georgia, and what's been happening since? <laughs> Thank you very much for having me on, George. It's always a pleasure. And, and before I start, I have a very quick question of my own. I've been through beautiful San Antonio, and we all went to a restaurant that had a bar in the back, and the building looked like it's getting ready to fall down. It was a leaning building, and I cannot remember the name of it. What was that? Oh, the, yes. The, 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 it's, well, it's literally called the San Antonio Bar. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's an old building that um, is very, very well known uh, as far as uh, uh, the tourist industry because uh, it is a, um, an icon here in San Antonio. Well, it was great. We had a blast, and everybody was nice to us. Um, people, people don't know George when we when we talk about the state of Georgia here, deep in the South. I'm a Michigan kid, but I've lived in Georgia for 40 years. Um, most people don't understand that Georgia has a, a rampaging illegal immigration problem as a direct result, as it is all over the country, of of corrupt politics and and uh, corrupt businessmen. But we have, in Georgia, according to the Migration Policy Institute, more illegal aliens than we have green card holders. Um, According to Department of Homeland Security, we have more illegal aliens calling Georgia home than they live in Arizona. And that number goes, the estimate goes anywhere from 375,000 to a little north of 400,000. Wow. So um, the, the illegal aliens in Georgia, illegal immigration, um, is a political fact. And we have been, um, the Republicans have ruled Georgia since 2004. Literally every single state constitutional office from the governor on down has been in the hands of the good old GOP um, since 2004. And, and I say that because I am a, a proud conservative, but I'm also very proud not to be a member of any political party. 
currently we have a governor in office who ran on a platform of, uh, I'm going to keep my big pickup truck in case I have to round up some criminal illegal aliens. Um, I assume the governor still has his pickup truck, but it is uh, little talked about but widely recognized that our governor, Brian Kemp, has not uttered the word immigration since he won the election in, in November. Uh, we have a problem here in Georgia because of the access to cheap labor. Agriculture, for people who don't know, agriculture is Georgia's um, chief industry. And in the metro Atlanta area where I live, we have around 5 billion people. It is a booming metropolis. If you don't believe me, come and try to drive in, in metro Atlanta. You, you won't like it. But what I'm getting at is in the rural areas, we have agriculture um, where the growers are using the artificially cheap black market labor. And in Atlanta, we have hotels, restaurants, and, and amenities that also use the cheap black market labor. So the lobbies that are set up in you access to this labor are, are very effective in the capital. I have worked in the Georgia capital for 15 years, um, drafting legislation, getting legislation passed, and, and then now trying to get it enforced. Well, we have a statewide um, e-verify law that is, that is, there's never been a prosecution for any violation of our e-verify law, which might lead people to believe that everyone is obeying the law and everything's going just fine. It's quite the opposite, just that the law is being ignored. So let me ask you, let me ask you this, because uh, when you've got that strong lobbying and that many illegal aliens, you are also going to have, by definition, leftist organizations, you know, tied to La Raza and other or other groups like that. Is that um, do you confront many of these groups? <laughs> yeah, and they are growing. We 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 have a, a herd, if you will, of of leftist anti enforcement, um, no borders, illegal aliens are the victims organizations here. Uh, when I first started being active with my own money. In, in 2003, when I set aside my own business, I was effectively fighting two or three different organizations. The biggest one then was called the Georgia Association of Latino Elected Officials. Yeah, Naleo. Yeah, that, yes, I'm familiar with them. Naleo, and, and obviously, if you if you name an anti-enforcement organization and put the word Latino in it, then anybody who opposes this organization is painted immediately exactly. as some, somehow anti-Latino. here. If you are Latino and you stand up for enforcement, then you're going to be anti-immigration. It's, it, it, it's a game that I, I expect people recognize all over the country, but we have many of these groups. Um, the group I just mentioned, Galeo, is, is funded by the uh, Coca-Cola company, the, the Georgia Power. The, the, the Georgia Power Company is... Obviously, the company who produces and sells all the electricity here in Georgia, Southwest Airlines, a, a, a long list of uh, immigration lawyers, Telemundo, and they're very open about it. And like, for example, Telemundo will donate uh, meeting space in their studios for conference rooms for various meetings for the illegal alien lobby, which I think I have accurately named all of these. We have a group here called um, the Project South for Liberation and Anti-Genocide that's read by, led by a Hun, excuse me, an Iranian-born communist um, that regularly has uh, rallies along with a, a, another group called the Georgia Alliance for Latino Human Rights. And they're always careful to put an ethnic group uh, name in there right. so that when they, when they have a lobby and they put up signs that they, and I hope I can say this on the radio, you can hear, you can decide if you can't, but they put up signs at their rallies saying Kinga La Migra, and most oh, yeah. people in Georgia don't know exactly what that means. Exactly, yes, yes. Oh. We we know, we know very well what that means in in Texas, that's for sure. Yeah, Chinga La Migra. Uh, we see those around here a, a lot as well. I, I'm, I'm trying to make people understand that this problem isn't just in Texas or Arizona or, or, or California. Georgia has a serious problem. Um, the, the conversation in the Georgia State Capitol 
uh, in years past, would recognize that we have a problem, and they would they would begrudgingly pass a law aimed at it, and and then ignore the law. Well, it's it's evolved now to a place where the discussion of illegal immigration is really and truly not allowed in the Georgia state capital that is controlled by Republicans, because Georgia is rapidly turning blue, and one or two more elections, and we will be run by the Democrats. And a harbinger of what's coming is is the Gwinnett County, Georgia, where demographics have changed a, a once solid conservative Republican county, one of the largest in metro Atlanta, into into now what is mostly the next election will be a completely new. Amazing, amazing. So, what uh, what is it that you try to do? What is it? What are some of the things that you're working on to avoid this this uh, destruction of liberty and freedom and rule of law in Gwinnett County as well as the rest of Georgia? Well, when I started, I was an insurance agent, and it turned out that one of my best friends was a state legislator, and he later became a state senator and then the um, the Senate Majority Leader. So I had access to to leadership, and it, it turned out that I had a, a, a natural affinity for reading legislation. Who knew? Um, and I, I was lucky enough to be allowed to draft legislation, much of which is now on the, on the books here in Georgia as law. But what I know, and I hope people, other people recognize, is that if you cut off the access to jobs, benefits, and services to people in the country illegally, they will leave and they will go to some place where it's easier to get along. So for years, we, we passed incrementally laws that made it difficult to get public benefits, for example. Uh, we, we, we passed along, we passed laws that, that put huge penalties of mandatory incarceration for driving without a license. And then incrementally, if you got caught a couple of times after that. And I don't mean like you left your driver's license on your dresser. I mean, ever having been issued a driver's license in Georgia is pretty serious here if it's enforced. So what we tried real hard to do for years was just to make living in Georgia very, very difficult for illegal aliens. Now, that that concept has a name, and we know that it works. It's called attrition by enforcement or attrition of the illegal alien population by enforcement of the law. And we know it works because each time we would pass a law, people would think it was going to actually be enforced, and illegal aliens would leave the state. There'd be news stories about beagles at the bus stations early in the morning waiting to catch a ride to Alabama or Arizona or even back to Mexico. Yeah. Uh, DA, we've only got about a minute to go. Uh, what uh, what can you tell us uh, about the state of illegal immigration right now there uh, real quick, and, and and then tell us how people can support uh, the Dustin Inman uh, Society. Well, thank you very much, George. I'm going to do it in reverse. It's a limited on time. The Dustin Inman Society.org. The Dustin Inman Society.org. People can go to our website or our Facebook page. You go to our website, you can see that we don't have much money because the website is, was put up in 2005 and we don't yet have enough money to upgrade it. But um, the Dustin Inman Society is named after a man, a young man who is forever 16 years old because an illegal alien drove into the back of the Inman family car and killed Dustin um, and has then escaped to Mexico. Illegal immigration will be the end of this country if we don't stop it, and I don't think that is news to anybody. Wow. Thank you very much, DA. We've got to get you back on the show again, and we can chat a little bit more about what's going on. Uh, in the South and in Georgia specifically about uh, illegal immigration because, you know, we know what's happening on the border. We we need to find out exactly what's happening uh, in the uh, in, in, inside the, the, the country. Thank you very much, D.A. Thank you, George. Us. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure. Hello, El Conservador listeners. If you are interested in following George Rodriguez, El Conservador, we invite you to follow him at his internet website, elconservador.net. 
You can also follow him on Facebook at George Rodriguez El Conservador and on Twitter at El Conservador for daily commentaries. You can also purchase his book, El Conservador, Conservative Opinions, online at Amazon.com. The book contains essays and commentaries about illegal immigration, fake news, and race relations. If you're interested in inviting El Conservador to speak to your group or event, please contact him through Facebook or through the station at 930amtheanswer.com. El Conservador thanks you for your support. Keep the fire of freedom burning. Once again, my friends, George Rodriguez, El Conservador, talking to you on KLUP 930 AM radio. And uh, we've got a very, very special guest with us, uh, Mr. Brian Kilmeade from Fox News. And he has just finished writing a book uh, that uh, really hits home for all of us here in San Antonio. Uh, it's called uh, Sam Houston and the Alamo Avengers. And we wanted to get uh, Brian on here because uh, we want to find out about uh, what inspired him to, to write this book. And uh, first of all, let me tell you, Brian, it is excellent reading. I really, I mean, it's so easy to read. I love it. I, well, I, I'm a history buff anyway. But what inspired you? What what, uh, what inspired you to write this this book? Well, I'll tell you, for you to do that means a lot to me because, I mean, the book, we just got copies of it two and a half weeks ago, and no, almost no one has read it outside my circle, so I appreciate you doing this. Um, I guess you got, uh, you got a, they got a copy to you, which is great. Number two is, being that you're from San Antonio, you know this story, most of the country doesn't take much of Texas history. We might do a year of it, a fourth grade, maybe maybe a little bit in 11th grade, and we just move. And they'll only hear about, uh, you know, the the Texas fight for freedom is about the Alamo. What I wanted to do with Sam Houston, the Alamo Avengers, is talk about what led to it and what happened after it. Um, and San Jacinto. And when we and when I did the series on Fox Nation, one of my first stop was the Alamo. I remember. Not only, not only are you guys prideful, but you're reestablishing the footprint. And I know there's controversy with that, but George P. Bush, we, we did we met with him and everything, and he's going to be on the TV special November 17th. Did a whole hour on Texas's fight for freedom, and and to be able to go down there and understand the church is just a small portion of what the Alamo was, and uh, to understand this full stake of it, it's not. It also goes to show you too. I love stories that are non-traditional. Why do we celebrate this devastating loss where everybody who fought died? Well, it's the way they fought. The valor in which they uh, fought, how they stared death uh, uh, down, down the barrel of death, and still acted with great courage. And we got this from reading the workings of William Travis, a 27-year-old lawyer which, who went down to Texas like so many to remake himself. And when he got command of the Alamo, he knew he was outnumbered anywhere from 2,000 to, to 3,000 Mexican fighters. He had under 200, they think 180, and they were to hold out for over 10 days to finally uh, giving in on March 5th. And when they penetrated the walls, everybody would die, the bodies would be burned. But the way they fought inspired the people of Texas, most of which were Americans, and they would ultimately get their revenge and remember the Alamo, remember Goliad, which is the other massacre that took place a short, a short distance away. Now, in, in talking about Goliad, uh, my grandparents used to talk about the angel of Goliad, and I never knew what, who that was. And uh, you did some research on that individual. Can you talk, talk to us a little bit about that? She's a woman who, who was uh, of Mexican descent, and she uh, protected a lot of the soldiers. And to, to let you know what was happening at the time real quick, if you go there today, it looks like something the Vikings built. It was the land that time forgot. It's almost in the middle of the neighborhood. And you had Jim Fannin, a West Point, uh, he attended West Point but never graduated, he is defending Goliad. Even though Sam Houston told him to leave, we're not going to defend force. They ignored him. When, they, when the Alamo called for Jim Bannon to help, he started going. A few wagons fell apart. He panicked and went backwards. When he finally decides to leave Goliad, he's in the middle of nowhere when he gets confronted by the Mexican forces. At which time, he sets up uh, a square perimeter and defends himself. And before going to full bore, they met. And they said, listen, do we want to kill each other or... Jim Fannin, you're a military guy. I'm a military guy. Why don't you come back to me when the fort? Well, if you promise not to continue this fight, we'll let you guys go home. So Fannin looked at his man, knew he was outnumbered, knew it was probably going to end badly. He goes back to the fort. 
when he goes back to the Ford after a few days, they say, okay, we're going to bring you home. We're not going to bring you to uh, home all at once. So they bring 100 one way, 150 the other way. When they get separate, all of a sudden they turn and shoot them all in cold blood. Wow. The ones that were kept, the ones who were sustained, the angel of Goliad gave, tipped them off and protected them. And that's how she would be known. And there's a statue for them in the, in the fort even today. So she saw the, the wisdom of their ways. The, the, uh, the, she thought their fight for freedom was laudable. And she protected them and knew what was staring at them. And that was an execution. So the ones that escaped were able to get to Sam Houston. And man, don't you think they were ready to, for some revenge? And when they finally would have their final uh, fight and their only fight in San Jacinto, it last 18 minutes. And a lot of that was payback. But when they got Santa Ana, they didn't kill him. They kept him. And they made him sign over Texas and stopped the reinforcement from bailing them out. And ultimately, it would allow Texas to become a country for nine years. And, you know, the, this, uh, the thing that has fascinated me about that was that, uh, you know, instead of Sam Houston taking revenge and hanging uh, Santa Ana like, uh, you know, many of us feel that he, he deserved it, uh, he demanded uh, the freedom, the liberty, and, and independence of Texas. I mean, that to me, that was a statesman. That was a statesmanship uh, move, really a lot. Uh, what, what do you think that 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 was all about? George, add to this: he was shot. I mean, the guy again leads the charge. He's leading the charge. He doesn't know if he's going to survive, and he leads the charge across an empty field where there is no protection, and he gets shot in the leg. So he's bleeding, and he would have to be uh, sent over to Louisiana for, to, for, uh, for immediate medical care right after. And with the, with the extreme pain, he was able to be cool and calculated as he negotiates with Santa Ana and his aides uh, after Santa Ana had dressed down like a peasant hoping to escape. He didn't care about his men. He just wanted to get out of there. And what he a, would have five lives, by the way. What a coward. <laughs> and instead, they would keep him, and he would make sure they didn't hang him. Because he was much more, worth much more alive. And it was after he got himself to meet Andrew Jackson as president at the time when Jackson escorted him and made sure he was brought back to Mexico, where first in disgrace, then he'd go back to power a few times. But how much composure does that take, knowing many of the people that he executed fought uh, technically under Sam Houston's command and almost all were his friends, and certainly fighting for, fighting for the same cause. And yet he kept his composure. And I think there's a lesson in that. The Sam Houston in his 20s never would have been able to do that. After years of living with the Cherokee Indians, uh, studying under uh, Andrew Jackson, making many mistakes himself in the War of 1812, he learned composure and composure and command. Amazing, uh, you know what? What uh, what a hero to us, uh, Sam Houston truly is. What else did you learn from uh, from from uh, the research and, and writing the book? Everything. Uh, number one, it is an American story. I mean, if you want to know what this is about, there's a debate on, you know, did we take Texas? To me, there's no way we took Texas. Uh, Texas was part of Mexico. If they had allowed Texas to be a separate, independent state of Mexico, they would have stayed. Instead, they, they, they tear up their own constitution. They say our people are not ready for liberty, and that includes the Mexicans, which are Americans. In 10 years after Moses Austin cut the deal and Stephen F. Austin implemented the deal, they put more Americans into Mexico in 10 years than the Spanish did in 300 years. It wasn't populated. They were scared to death of the American Indians, and they used the Texans, enticed them to come. So you got to be Catholic, um, no slaves. They had a few criteria, and they allowed Mexico to flourish. And they set up many societies there under Mexican rule. But they were not given any services. They were not given military protection. They were just there. And when they started taking their rights away, you don't do that to Texans. All those movies showing the Texans were raw, you know, do-it-yourself pioneers, uh, those movies accurately portrayed the people of Mexico. They were told, you go there, but you're on your own. And they learned, they learned real toughness and survived, and they were resourceful, and they were survivors. And they weren't going to go to Texas, come to the new world, number one, come to the new, new world, number two, and then give up their freedom. That wasn't going to happen. They were going to fight for it. It, it. it really is a true American story. I mean, you know, being of a Me of Mexican descent, my parent, my parents, my grandparents all said how blessed we were to be American first. Uh, when uh, fought on the side of of Houston, 
It's exactly right. I mean, you know, we, uh, you know, our our history is bound to uh, to Texas and by definition to the United States and to the Constitution. Uh, Brian, what um, what uh, else are you going to do with? Uh, I mean, do you have any other future plans to write anything else about uh, our great state here? <laughs> well, I, I want people to know about. It. I'm going to spend a lot of time in Texas. Going to be in Dallas. Going to be in Waco. Going to be in San Antonio. Obviously, Wichita Falls. Um, and coming back to Houston, we're going to look to expand it. I'm going to be at the George uh, W. Bush Museum. Hopefully people will get tickets there. Dana Perino is going to interview me, and I'll be able to talk about this book. But most of all, I want people to know, because our history is under attack. Yes. And I never thought I'd say that. I'm not saying it to sell a book. I'm telling you because it's fact. Excellent point. And, and people are under attack. So people should know our history is not perfect, but, man, it is special. And what we did is constantly go out of our way to improve as a country. Yes, women couldn't vote. African-Americans didn't have rights, but then they did. And then we fought a civil war to make sure of it. And when Reconstruction failed, we made it better. In the 1960s civil rights moments, we got even closer. And then even today, we're closer. We're not there. Look around the world. Nobody's close. We want to be perfect. We're constantly striving. We beat up on each other. But we should be proudful of our past and confident in our future and feel every day lucky to have grown up here and be here. And when we lose those values, we will not understand why everybody wants to come here. It's hard to appreciate a championship after you won it if you don't appreciate the journey. But we should appreciate the journey. And the only way to do that is to make the effort to read about it. So you have, we, I'm not saying everybody's life is easy. We're living paycheck to paycheck. Everyone's maybe having working two or three jobs, but it's the opportunity to be successful, to experience happiness. That's all we want. Nobody wants handouts. And the Texians known then and Texans known now and Americans forever don't want it handed to us. We want to be able to earn it. And we relish the opportunity to do it because in many places around the globe, the opportunity just isn't there. Wow. Brian, you are really inspiring. You are really an inspiration. Thank you very much for writing the book. Thank you very much for taking time to be on our show. Uh, I wish you success, and I wish you the best, buddy. Keep telling everybody about your family history and Goliath and everything like that. Uh, George Rodriguez, thanks so much. Thank you. Once again, my friends, that was Brian Kilmeade. From Fox News uh, talking about his new book, and we should uh, all try to get a copy of it because it's excellent. Sam Houston and the Alamo Avengers by Brian Kilmeade. Once again, George Rodriguez, El Conservador on KLUP 930 AM Radio, The Answer. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.